0: Peace be with you, church. And also Amen. With you. Amen. I love you, RBC, and I'm excited to be back in God's Word this morning with you. If you're visiting with us, and this is your first time, welcome. We are currently in a series through the book of Galatians. We're just taking it one step at a time, piece by piece, through the entire book. So if you want to jump in with us, we're going to be on page 974 in the Blue pew Bible under your chair or in the chair in front of you, page 974. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through 20. Now, I want to give you an overview of this text before we read through it, so that your mind can be thinking uh, this particular way as we read. As we've been seeing up to this point, here included in the book of Galatians, the Galatians were in present danger of turning away from the one true gospel that Paul brought to them at first. They're turning away to a false gospel brought by these Judaizers, Uh, They're telling you that you're justified by works, not by faith in Christ. And Paul made it clear back in Galatians 2 that we are justified by faith in Christ alone, not by works. But again, these Judaizers, these false teachers, they've come in, into the church, and they're teaching the church that they need to fulfill the requirements of the Mosaic law in order to truly be saved. So we get here to uh, verse 12 through 20. Paul's gotten to the point in the letter where he's now making his personal appeal for them to not turn away, but specifically not to turn away from me to those Judaizers. That's what he's getting at. So what I want you to see is this, a little overview. There's three characters in this text that we're going to see. First, you have Paul. He's our picture of a faithful labor, what faithful labor looks like, laboring over the Galatian churches from the very beginning, even until now, wanting to labor over them now. Second, you have the Galatian churches who first received Paul. that The Spirit of God was obviously at work there. They received the gospel, received him. But then we see the Galatian churches flirting with these ideas that they're hearing from the Judaizers. They're being tempted toward Judaizers in the place of Paul. Finally, the third character we see is The Judaizers themselves, okay? With them, we get a little inside look at the motives of unfaithful labor, the dangers of unfaithful laborers over you and receiving unfaithful laborers over you. So there's a comparison and contrast going on all throughout here, but those are the three main things I want you to see. You got Paul, you have the Galatian churches, and you have the Judaizers themselves. All of this, like I said, creating a contrast between Paul and the Judaizers and how their church should respond to them. They need to make a choice. Paul is telling them, make a choice. Become as I am. I've labored over you and I continue to do so faithfully or become like the Judaizers. And that's not a safe place to be. So with that picture in our mind, let's read verses 12 through 20. You can read along with me as I read aloud. Verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. For I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I believe the main point we ought to see here is this. As the church... We need to know how to recognize faithful laborers in Christ so that we might imitate their example. We need to know how to recognize faithful laborers in Christ so that we might imitate their example. And we're going to walk through the text together, verse by verse. I'm going to make several points, and I'll show them as we go. So let's start with verse 12. Paul says, Brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. First thing we see here, the best example we have of a faithful laborer besides Christ himself, we see Paul, and Paul, as a faithful laborer, we see his heart. He has compassion for the church. Brothers, he says, immediately we recognize Paul's love for these churches, Paul's affirmation of what the Spirit of God has been up to and what he's doing right now, making them sons, making them heirs with Christ Jesus by faith, the Holy Spirit's work bringing them to salvation, sanctifying them even now to this point, and he's, as he's already described in, in passages before, And Paul hasn't given them up yet. He's not done with them, nor has he given up hope that they really are believers and they're really pushing through. They just need to stay the course. He says, I entreat you. The NIV translates this as, I plead with you. Others, I beg you. Along with Paul's compassion, we see a holy desperation for their good. His urgency to care for them. That's what love does, church. That's what compassion does. Compassion says, if your brother or sister is being attempted away from Jesus, toward the world, toward their sin, toward the devil, compassion creates in you a desperation for their well-being. You want them to be okay, to be with Jesus. Think about it. Could we really say we genuinely loved these brothers or sisters, genuinely love these churches, if we don't desire their good in Christ? Paul's love for these churches starts a healthy chase for the good of their souls. But what is Paul saying that would be good for them? He says, become as I am, for I've also become as you are. Here, point two, we see a faithful laborer's exhortation. What does Paul mean when he says, become as I am? Well, I think the answer is actually what Paul wrote somewhere else to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 9. I'll read this for you. Paul says, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. Here it is. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul means this, when I labored among you, among is important, okay, because the Judaizers were outside the church, and they were telling the Galatians to go there and be like them, but Paul is among them laboring, and he says, become as I am. Well, what did Paul become in order to reach the majority Gentile Galatians? in these churches. He became as one outside of the law of God. How do we know that? Because that's where they were. He met them where they were with the gospel to win them there with the gospel. Remember back in Galatians 2, Peter's hypocrisy, right? What does Paul call him out on? He says, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The answer was never. You can't. You can't get the Gentiles to live like Jews, And that's, not, that's the very thing Paul, uh, Peter was trying to do in that moment because he got so caught up in the arguments that these Judaizers were making. But Paul's labor is the opposite of this. It isn't going and living among them like a hypocrite so that you can win them back to Judaism. No, it's to go and live like they do among them so that you can win them to Christ where they are. Paul became like one outside of the law in order to win the Gentiles to Christ. Win to Christ, that's the key. Not win them to a certain code of conduct or win them to some form of legalism or some form of religion that might get them closer to Jesus. No, he wanted to win them to Jesus. He wanted to win them to the crucified, dead, and risen Lord of life. There's a spreading problem in the church today as a whole that thinks the answer to reaching the world is to simply look, or even live like they do, so that the church would be more attractive to them. Some people think this way: make the church look more like a club, or individual individual believers look more like those on the outside, like the lost do. Oh, and don't forget to invite them to church, where it's all going to look the exact same as they're used to on the outside. This isn't the way to do church. It's also not the way to evangelize. We are called to live set apart even in the world that we're called to reach. But there is no living set apart when the world is setting in. We're called to live set apart. This is the way that Paul models for us. Paul even says he's not outside the law of God. Did you hear what he said in 1 Corinthians 9? He says he's under the law of Christ. This means the answer to winning the world for the Lord is not to look identical to the world or be like the world in unaltered and in ungodly ways, but become like the lost, meet them where they are in order to win the lost to their glorious Lord Jesus. There's a warning here that we see, okay? When you're living among the lost, you can compromise the gospel by how you live. You can compromise the gospel. If you do the same things your your lost friends or neighbors do, if you speak the same in ungodly ways, dress the same ungodly ways with your lost friends, if you seek the same ungodly entertainment, do the same ungodly things, you name it, in the hopes that even you might be a little more attractive to them when you do share the gospel of them, you're actually discrediting the gospel that you want to share. Because you look no different than them. This is the epitome of hypocrisy. To live just like the world while at the same time, Sharing a gospel that's transformative, but you look no different. On the flip side of this, there's the encouragement. It's to contextualize the gospel. Don't compromise the gospel, contextualize the gospel. That means become all things for all people, Paul would say. Different people in your life, they need to hear the gospel from different angles. You don't share the gospel the same exact way with every single person because they don't all need it in the same exact place. That's what it means to become all things. The Galatians were outside the law. So Paul didn't come up them with Jewish regulations and arguing from the Old Testament. He didn't come with dietary laws and calendar feasts or customs. He met them where they were as pagan deity worshipers so that he could reach them where they were. And he did it all while walking in holiness, in godliness under the law of Christ, like he says in Galatians 2.20. You can do that. You can meet someone where they are, but still look like Jesus there. Understand that Paul could not give this exhortation if he did not first labor among them faithfully doing this exact thing. If he didn't labor in their midst, know them, love them, shepherd them to to Jesus from where they were to where he saw that they could be, he could have never made this claim, but he did. He said, become like me. Because when he was with them, the Galatian churches heard the gospel. They saw the gospel at work in his life as one outside the law. They believed the gospel. They repented of their sins and they put their faith in Jesus because Jesus apparently really can change you. He really can change your life. They received the Holy Spirit of God all while being outside the law. Paul himself, laboring among them outside the law, never once telling them, yo, get back under the law and become a Jew so that you can be a Christian. No, this is the opposite of what the Judaizers were doing. Paul was laboring outside of the law, under the authority of Jesus, telling them to be like me. So let's continue, verse 13. End of 12 actually says, you did me no wrong. Paul is basically introducing a, a part, he's about to remind them how they received him first, in what manner they received him. This is supposed to serve as a, yet another, out of all the wake-up calls in this, in this book, this is another wake-up call, to remember how they received him. You received me well then. Why not now? Verse 13, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Okay, so still focusing on Paul's labor, we see here another character trait of a faithful laborer, a faithful laborer's message. What did Paul preach? He preached the gospel. He did not preach works. He did not preach conversion to Judaism. He did not preach The assuming of new laws on your back or legalistic living to be justified before God. He preached the gospel that you're justified by faith in Christ alone. Jesus, the Son of God made flesh, the perfect imprint of the Father's nature in human form, exemplified the love of God for this fallen world and that he came into our world. He came into our brokenness, into our mess, this present evil age, as Paul says in chapter 1, in order to deliver us from it. To deliver us from our sins, from our bondage. Because of God's compassion for us, for his his creatures, he sent Christ into this world to die the death that we deserve for our rebellion against God. Jesus hung on a tree between heaven and earth to bridge the gap between sinful humanity and our righteous creator so that whoever would repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus would be saved. That's what it takes to be saved. Jesus who lived a perfectly good life, a righteous life, and died in our place, is willing to exchange his perfect righteousness for our sinfulness by faith. Jesus, who rose from the dead, would give life to our weak and mortal body so that we can live with him forever by faith in him, in Jesus, who ascended from this earth to the throne of God, who will one day make all things new. We can be with him by faith. Death will be no more because Jesus conquered it. Sorrow will be no more because he's our eternal joy. Pain and punishment that we all suffer every single day will be no more because by the grace of God, we've been made new now, we've made new then, we've been justified now, we'll be saved and then we'll one day be with him forever in his presence. The gospel message, church, demands your whole life. It demands your life. It beckons you first to come and die, Die to yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. It 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 beckons us to make a decision. Will you turn away from your sin that keep you from the living God, or will you repent and come to Jesus, who brings you into a beautiful and a satisfying relationship with your heavenly Father? What is your choice? In Paul's words, do you choose bondage to the world, or would you choose freedom in the Lord Jesus? All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, no matter who you are, no matter how old you are, no matter where you are. The book of Galatians specifically seems to say you could be anywhere from a polytheistic pagan to a pious Jew. Either way, you need Jesus. And if you turn away from your sin, from your gods or your self-made religion, and you come to Jesus, you will be saved. This is a faithful laborer's message. This was Paul's message to the Galatians. This is our message for the world that so desperately needs it. They need to hear this. And will you share this message with people? Will you share it with the church? A message about the God who created them, who loves them so much that he, would, that he genuinely desires a relationship with every sinner on the face of the earth, the same God who promises them life, hope, satisfaction, purpose, redemption, sanctification, and the God who always keeps his promises. They turn to faith in Jesus. Jesus can and will change anyone who comes to him. No exceptions. As weary and heavy laden as they might be, he can change them and provide relief. And we stick to this message because this is the message that changed you and I, is it not? Is it not the message that we live by and continues to change us day by day for the glory of God and for our good that we're made into the likeness of Christ? Along with Paul's message, we see a faithful laborer's obedience. Verse 13. A faithful laborer obeys God. And I'll show you how I get there. Paul says it was because of a bodily ailment that he preached the gospel at first, meaning when he first arrived. Now, really briefly, there's a variety of opinions on what this bodily ailment might be. Uh, opinions because Paul never clarifies it, so we can't have certainty that these are real. They're all speculation. But I do want to just point that out, that some people say Paul was suffering from his countless beatings from persecution. He was stoned a variety of ways, beat with whips, tormented. Maybe he was suffering, maybe. Some say because of the region that he was in, he could have had some sickness that required him to travel to Galatia for relief. Uh, maybe better air, right? Maybe. It's possible. But I would probably be inclined, this, isn't, this is just my opinion, I would probably be inclined that it was a problem with his eyesight. There's a problem with his eyes. And I would say that because of verse 15, he brings in them gouging out their eyes. It's oddly specific if not for he had a problem with his eyes. But I also base this on when Jesus converted him. He blinded him. And when he gave him his sight back, it was like scales fell from his eyes. Maybe there's a little something left there. But I also base it on when Paul describes the thorn in his flesh. Why does God give him a thorn? Because Paul had surpassing revelations. He saw heavenly things that were unspeakable. He couldn't talk about them. And then he says the thorn was given to him so that it would keep him humble. So my assumption is maybe because he saw in his spirit all these glorious things, the Lord gave him a little bit of a suffering in his physical eyes to keep him humble. If I could see heavenly things, why can't I see earthly things, God? Makes sense why it would be this. But again, that's just a maybe, okay? But that's not the point. The point is not what it was. The point is that The churches received him despite the sickness. So before we get there, I want to show you this. Paul's faithful obedience to God in his sickness. Okay, Paul's sickness, notice, it did not stop him from preaching the gospel. He had greater desires than his own physical comfort, his own well-being. Not only did Paul push through his sickness without hindrance to his mission, but Paul actually saw his sickness as an opportunity for gospel witness there. It was because of the bodily ailment that he preached the gospel to these Galatian churches. Now, do you think about sickness this way in your life? What about other things that don't happen according to plan? Well, I would contend with you that Paul had an eye for the providence of God. He knew better than any of us. The sovereign power of God. And not only did he know it theologically, but he knew it functionally. He had an eye for it. He watched out for it. Think about the providence of God, okay? Paul got sick there, and at that time, he knew what God's mission was for him, but he got sick. Why are you making me sick? Well, he got sick there for a purpose. He recognized the providence of God in this and saw this sickness as an opportunity to preach there. Because guess what? They needed the gospel too. Church, how do you think about the circumstances of your life? Is it all random chance? Is it all disconnected? Is it unnecessary events? If you really believe in the sovereignty of God, I would encourage you to begin to think about the events of your life through a providential lens. Every event in your life, from the flat tires all the way to the kids waking up all night long, even sickness those things we initially view as problems or hindrances to our life are providentially from the hand of God. Maybe God's up to something in your life. Maybe God wants to teach you something. Maybe God wants to use you in that moment for a specific reason. But let me tell you this, you won't see it unless you're looking for it. We should learn to ask God what he's doing. What are you doing, Lord? Lord, what are you teaching me in this? Lord, are you wanting to use me here? Why do you want to use me here? Why is this happening right now? Even if, the only thing, even if the only thing you learn in that moment is greater dependence on God, then all glory, honor, and praise be to him who sits on high because you just learned how to trust God even more. Like other things, though, the best way to grow in this is to grow in this kind, in this kind of watchfulness is by prayer and practice. You want God to use you in your life for gospel ministry? You want God to use you to reach people for his purposes, for his glory? Well, listen, be obedient first by being watchful, then be obedient by stepping out and doing it. Let me give you a a quick example from my life. There was one particular day, I don't know if you ever feel this way, it's probably only me, but days where you're like, God, why do you even have me here? What's my purpose? Like, I feel like I'm a waste well, in the midst of me feeling my pity party, my waste party, um, I drove to some Jiffy Lube that I wasn't supposed to be at. i never go there. I was on the way to pick up someone from the airport, stop at this Jiffy Lube for a tire. Or I don't even remember what it was. I think it was an oil change. And I get there, and I'm just like, God, I don't want you to use me with anything. Don't use me at all. Like, so I just sat there and opened my Bible, you know, like a good Christian. Don't use me, God, but you read your Bible. And in the midst of it all, the guy says, all right, you're done. Pretty quick, stood up there. And he starts talking to me. And I know, when somebody starts talking to me, God's doing something. Why are you talking to me? I'm not worth your time. But they start talking to me, and I'm like, okay, well, maybe this is it. Talk to him a little bit. Come to find out he had just had a dinner, or his girlfriend had just had a dinner the night before, Manassas, and she witnessed someone take their own life. I thought, oh, man, maybe i got to talk to him. So I was like, hey, do you believe in God? Do you, you know, do you know Jesus? Can I pray for you? He's like, no, 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 don't pray for me. Pray for those guys out there, my, my workers. He's like, yeah, they came in this morning and they saw one of their coworkers who had passed away from a heart attack last night. I'm like, whoa, what is God doing today? So I'm obviously there by divine appointment and praise be to God. The Lord humbled me, reminded me that he's using me. And I walk out there and I start talking to this guy. I share the gospel with this guy, pray with this guy. Long story short, he tells me, you know, it's weird. Just yesterday, somebody came in for an oil change and they started talking to me about the Bible, talking to me about God. And I said, look, man, you saw the system. I don't go to this Jiffy Lube. God sent you a second person to tell you that you need to believe in Jesus. You need to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, man. Please, just hear me what I'm saying. He may not send a third one. Please. He said he would think about it. So I left and I prayed the Lord would send him number three. But listen, pray for divine appointments like this and God will give them. Be watchful of them so that you're ready You may never know why God has you in a place. I didn't know why God wanted me in that jiffy loop. But you sure know what to do in those moments, don't you? At a minimum, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel to whoever it is that needs to hear it. This is what Paul, despite his sickness, did for these churches. He knew his calling. Any and everywhere, rain or shine, sickness or hell, God had a purpose for Paul. And at a minimum, his purpose was to preach the gospel. Who needs to hear it today, Lord? Who needs to hear it today? Show me. Grow into watchfulness and prayer and practice of this. Verse 14. Though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Here we see a faithful laborer's weakness. He says, though my condition was a trial to you. Now, it's difficult to catch what Paul is saying in the English. So one commentator did sort of an amplified translation that I think is helpful. I'm going to read it. It's by a guy named Richard Longnecker. He says, And though my illness was a temptation for you to reject me, Tom Schreiner, another theologian, says this, Such weakness from Paul was a temptation to the Galatians, for it seemed to be a sign that Paul's message was not from God. For surely a divine message would be accompanied by the strength rather than the weakness of the messenger. Nevertheless, the Galatians were granted spiritual perception, for they did not reject or loathe Paul for his suffering. The Spirit of God was at work in the Galatian churches, allowing them to see past Paul's obvious weakness, which was a temptation for them to not not believe him, discredit him. They saw past that, and they heard the truth of his message and believed He says, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me. This speaks of Paul's reception, rightly, among the church. The church, by the power of God, brought Paul in with such love, with such grace, as if they were bringing Jesus in himself. He went from angel to then Jesus. You accept me like Jesus. And the first thing we need to understand here is seeing Paul's weakness and the Galatian... Galatians' reception of him, despite their very real temptation to reject him, is that we don't judge by appearances. If the Galatians would have done this, they would have rejected Paul. And they're honestly making that mistake now by bringing in the Judaizers. They're they're judging the Judaizers by their appearance how successful they look. They seem to like they got it all together, more than Paul. They seem like they know their stuff. They seem like it doesn't matter what they seem like. Church, we judge prayerfully by the Spirit with right judgment. We don't judge by appearances. We are called by God Himself in His Word to test the spirits, test everything to see if they're from God. And we don't do so by looking at appearances. But we listen to the message that's delivered first does it line up with the gospel that I know that I've received and then we check the character of the heart we look at the inside the heart we don't look at the appearance on the outside we don't look at the outside just because someone has a big platform right it's tempting they're well known they're well spoken just because they have a nice appearance doesn't mean that they're bringing you the truth on the flip side it also doesn't mean that all weakness is from the Lord. And now I just say that to warn us away from some form of sympathy. Someone might come at us, they seem pitiful. And what happens when they come at us? We let our guard down, more willing to receive them and what they say. But as believers with the spirit, we recognize that true weakness isn't merely physical weakness. True weakness is spiritual. I mean here a deep-rooted dependence of a true labor on the Spirit of God that cannot be faked. It cannot be faked. Paul's message was the gospel, that's right, and the way he lived lined up with the gospel he preached, which is obvious because he was still preaching in the midst of sickness. So recognize true weakness. Spiritual dependence on the Spirit is true weakness. And then remember, for the sake of your own labors, that the Lord loves using the weak to shame the strong the world doesn't understand god's wisdom god uses the weak we posture ourselves and we posture ourselves for weakness dependency on the spirit when we devote ourselves to things like prayer we devote ourselves to things like fasting when we open god's word for nourishment first before we go to worldly means like Paul says elsewhere, we rejoice in our weaknesses because when we're weak for Christ's sake, then we are made strong with Christ's strength. If you want to be used by God, start by practicing a posture of weakness in your life, dependency on Him for strength. We don't rely on physical strength, physical abilities, personal accomplishments to accomplish our mission. We must rely on God's strength or we will fail. Verse 15, we know that the church received him in weakness. That's evident of the Holy Spirit's work. And that's evident because there was a radical love there for Paul. Look at verse 15. What then has become of your blessedness? Paul's saying, you aren't treating me as the same as before. You aren't living the same as before. Before it was radical love, but here he says, I testify to you that if possible, then you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. I don't know about your, I don't know about you, church, but there's not a lot of people in this world that I think I would gouge my eye out with and give it to them, right? Now, if I'm being honest, though, the point here is showing something deeper than that. Look at let me, let me say this to you. Do you know, though, that person that you love so much that you would take their cancer from them in your own body, and you would feel the pain of it so that they could be relieved of it? Do you know that person That you would gladly take the dementia out of their mind and put it in your mind so that you would forget, but they can remember Jesus. Do you know that person that you would gladly take all of their pain because you love them so much and you just want to see them relieved? That kind of love is how the church loved Paul. They saw how much pain he was in because of his sickness and they were willing to, to do the drastic things to take it away, to take it even on themselves. They feel the pain just so they can give him their eye. You ever felt that kind of love for a church member? You ever felt that kind of love for a saint that you commune with? The Lord Jesus wants that kind of love in his church amongst his people for one another and the people for those who labor over them, their love for one another as well. A love that's willing to suffer so that they could find relief. A love that's willing to take the pain so that they could feel peace. That's radical spirit wrought love that cannot be faked. We do see here also a faithful laborer's admonishment. We see his admonishment. Don't miss Paul, okay? Don't miss it that with this rhetorical question, he really is trying to show them that they're in error. They're in error, and he does it in order to correct it, but it's for their good. It's not good that they've changed up. They've turned away from Jesus. They're slightly moving away from him. That's dangerous. Notice how he admonishes them. He asks the hard question... Then he encourages them with their former faithfulness. This is a helpful way for all of us as we seek to imitate Paul as a faithful laborer together, as he imitates Jesus, as we seek to imitate the pastors who labor over us, as we seek to imitate the good in the brothers and sisters who labor around us and with us. It is good to see how you are to admonish. It's not heavy-handed scolding. It's not bitter. It's compassionate. Brother, sister, this is an area I see in our lives where there could be problems. You say, you know, I love you, I know you love Jesus, and I want you to be closer to Jesus. If we're not faithful to do that, we're not being faithful to our brothers and sisters. There's a right way to admonish. A lot of it revolves around how you say it. And we've all got to get better at learning how to admonish in a godly way. And we all need to get better at receiving admonishment from our brothers and sisters. Because without that, without that, how are we going to grow? How are we going to grow if someone doesn't show us our blind spots where we don't see it? How are we going to look more like Jesus if someone doesn't show us the areas that we need to? And that brings us to verse 16. He says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? We see a faithful laborer's content. The content is truth. There's a big contrast here between verse 13... At first, and then here, verse 16, and now. His reception was blessed then, but Paul is an enemy now. He was received warmly, welcomed warmly then, but he is rejected and dismissed by the churches as an enemy now. This is where we start to see the stain of the Judaizers. We might not have seen it at first, but we start to see it now. If Paul is an enemy, that means the enemy has become the ally. The Galatians have received the Judaizers in his place They have an opposing message. They have an opposing goal. They have an opposing purpose that runs contrary to Paul and Paul's gospel and the Galatians' border falling subject to them. Look at what has made Paul an enemy. Look at what makes him an enemy. Telling the truth. Paul didn't bring opinion. He didn't bring what he thought was best practice for them. He didn't bring his own desires to them. He brought the truth. He brought the gospel And let the gospel bring its power, its rule of faith, its demands on the life of every person who says that they believe it. Church, a faithful laborer's calling is not to bring opinions. It's to bring truth. And for us today, we need to remember where that truth is found. It's found in the inspired, infallible word of God. Paul is correcting the church's courts with truth. He's not saying, oh, oh, you shouldn't follow those guys because uh, I'm better than them, or you shouldn't follow those guys because I don't like them, or, or you shouldn't listen to them because me, me, me. He's not making it about himself. Paul confronts them with the truth of the gospel specifically, but the truth of God's word as a whole. Because it's only in God's word that we know for certain the gospel, we know for certain what is true because God has revealed it to us. How to be in relationship with him, what he expects of us in terms of obedience, what he calls us to do. We go to God's word to know what God expects for us in Christ, he's told us. And this relates back to Paul's admonishment as our example, okay? There's a very real temptation to reject the faithful admonishment of a brother or sister when they bring the truth of God's word to us. It's a real temptation. And let's be honest, we're all sinners. Christian, you sin. God's word tells you so. If you feel like you don't, you do. But Jesus is so good that he died for all of it. past present and future. And he tells us, walk in the light as he's in the light, confessing your sins to one another that you might be healed, confessing our sins so that Christ will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And as redeemed sinners, we need to be wary of how we receive truth. On one side, the truth is a comfort. It's a comfort to us when we're walking in obedience to God. On the other side, the truth hurts and it hurts us usually when we're walking in disobedience to God. That's because the Lord's hand brings heavy conviction on his children. He disciplines the one he loves. We cannot, in those moments, harden our hearts to the truth from God's word ever. Never safe, never good. If the word of God says it, we must submit to it, whether or not the person delivers it to us in a good way or not. We have to believe God's word. But further, we should not harden our hearts toward the brothers or sisters who bring the truth to us from God's word. We should open our hearts wide and and receive them as we would receive Jesus teaching us, correcting us, because they're doing this for our good. They're doing it for God's glory. That brother or sister loves you so much that more than the other 150 brothers or sisters, he's willing to come to you and say, hey, I see this in your life. The temptation, though, when they bring the admonishment is to make them an enemy. They're on a different team. We're opposed. They think they're treating me different. But what happens when you put somebody on the enemy's team? You start to block them out. You don't listen to what they say. And that's not good for your spiritual health. It's not good for our spiritual health. Again, we need to get back at a giving and receiving of admonishment. Sometimes we bring the truth, but we're real jerks about it. And we call people out like they're mad about the truth, but the reality is they might just be mad because you're a jerk. And you brought this bad news as a jerk. If you're on the receiving end, I want to encourage you with that. My honest man encouragement of you, if you're on the receiving end of someone who brings encouragement as a jerk, I don't know how you can, but my encouragement is to actually receive what they say. Receive it. Discern what it is that they're saying. Pray through it. Ask the Lord for clarity to reveal the sins in you that they see. Bring conviction of that sin and then change you, sanctify you. And then after that point, once you've been with the Lord, don't go before then, but once you've been with the Lord and you've seen what is true, you can go back with grace yourself and say, hey, thank you for telling me the truth. I saw this, I see this, I repented, I'm trusting the Lord. Here are some ways that you could have said it a little bit more graciously. But see what you're doing there? Now you are admonishing with truth yourself. We're not enemies now. We're not on different teams now. Guess what happened? Guess what's happening? We're both growing in the Lord. The body of Christ as a whole is healthier. It's better because you stuck it out. You didn't treat them as an enemy, but you received the truth from them and you even admonished them in return. The next person will thank you when they bring confrontation to them. Your desire in that moment is for their good and their good, including yourself. And this transition us to verse 17. He says, they make much of you but for no good purpose. We see here a faithful laborer's pursuit and his purpose. They make much of you. The NASB translates this as, they eagerly seek you, NIV. They are zealous to win you over, CSB. They court you eagerly. There are two competing voices. This is why I started off, I wanted you to see the overview. There's two competing voices, one Galatian church. The language here is similar to the language that you might use in a man's pursuit of a woman that he wants to marry. There's a courtship, but the problem here is that there seems to be a bit of competition going on with somebody else. Somebody else has showed up on the scene. Paul's on one side, Judaizers are on the other. Being pursued like that, being pursued is a good thing, as Paul will make clear in the next verse, but the problem is that the Judaizers' pursuit, unlike Paul, is not for a good purpose. Here's the idea. The Judaizers are putting a lot of effort to win these Christians over to their side, but it's not for a good purpose. It's so that they can shut out the Galatians, so that the Galatians would then start this zealous pursuit of them. It's manipulation. The Judaizers are trying to use the Galatians for their own ends. They want to take something from the Galatians and not give themselves in return. That's not healthy not healthy in a relationship and you definitely hear it here it's not healthy we see the opposite of a faithful laborer here in the judaizers their pursuit is guess what of their self they're selfishly motivated self-interested self-serving their ultimate concern is not the church their ultimate concern is for themselves the purpose is for self-exaltation it's about me and what i get making much of me make much of me church And this is what I'll call the Judaizer ploy. Just because someone is pursuing after you zealously with what may seem to be all the right words, what may seem to be for your good or et cetera, it doesn't mean that what they're bringing is the truth, nor does it mean that your best interest is in their minds. The Judaizers are not laboring among the church. They're pulling them outside of what they know. They're not trying to help the Galatians walk closer to Christ. Their goal is to make their name great, not Jesus. Whose name are you making great this morning? The love of a laborer has for their church and the church for their laborers is a spirit given love and devotion. The Lord alone can provide this kind of love for his people. That is the love of Christ in us, working through us. Think about how the Judaizers, being outsiders, would have looked into the church and perceived this. Okay, they see here's this guy, Paul. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty loved. He's pretty popular, well provided for. There's this group of people that follow him. They always you know, talk good about him. Well, we want that kind of following. We want those kind of people in our church. The Judaizers were trying to manufacture the same kind of love and devotion by forcing, tricking, deceiving them toward their way of thinking. It's a lie. It's an imitation, and it's an ugly one at best of what the Spirit alone does. Now think, how true is this in the world? The world, the flesh, and the devil try to manufacture the Spirit's work of love. We even see this in the proposals of other world religions that might even claim to be Christians. But they can't manufacture this kind of love that only the Spirit of God can produce. And you do know it, church, when you see it. But it begins with a faithful pursuit, a zealousness for the good of someone else and for the purposes of sharing in the goodness of Christ together. Verse 18, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I'm present with you. And there it is, it must be for a good purpose. The purpose of us together Sharing with Christ, walking with him, knowing him and his glory together, making it to the end together. Those are the kind of faithful laborers we ought to imitate, that we ought to be ones running after Jesus so that, hey, when you see a brother who's going slow, you say, hey, run with me. Let's run to Jesus together. Jesus is the goal. We want to make it toward the upward call of Christ Jesus. In verse 18, unlike the Judaizers, Paul shows us a faithful laborer's humility in this. The Judaizers wanted it all about them. So they tried to fit Christianity under this little umbrella of law keeping and then you get your own group of people, your own cult of people who believe Jesus, but at the same time, keep the Mosaic law. And then once you have your own little cult here, you can make your own rules, and then you can keep all your people in it, and nobody can question your judgment, because you're the only one who knows about it, and you're the labor who started it. You know your stuff. Those other people know nothing. Everybody has to answer to you. No, it's not about you. It's not about the leader. It's about Jesus. And Jesus can accomplish his purposes with or without the leader. And he can do so by using others with the same gospel zeal to accomplish his purposes in his church. Paul here wants to remove any doubt. Don't miss it. He wants to remove any doubt that he is just like them, that he is jealous over them in some similar worldly way, that he wants to remove any notion that the reason he's all been out of shape is because of his pride. He just wants them to be following him. Glorifying him. But now they're following these new guys. But that's not the case. Paul knows it's not about him. It's about Jesus. And I love what Paul says here. It's labor, humility on full display. These are the kinds of teachers, the kinds of pastors that we need. This is the kind of pastor I want to be, that I hope to be. Paul had no problem with other laborers ministering the same gospel to the same church. If it was for the same good purpose... He was happy. And that means other laborers zealously pursuing after their good in the true gospel. And that's what Paul wants, whether it's him or it's somebody else. He says it like this. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He wants the church to follow Jesus. But these people are trying to lead them away. They're not good laborers. He does, however, problem with them. They're zealously pursuing after the church with false gospels for their own good. Paul knows he isn't the only one who can or will ever labor over these churches. There will be laborers who come after him, and he's excited for that. He wants them to be raised up. He doesn't want to be the only laborer. He wants more laborers, but the content of the laborer matters. He wants the right kind of laborers with the right gospel, with the right character. And that brings us to verse 19 and 20. We see a faithful laborer's perseverance. The vivid picture, it's vivid. The vivid picture Paul gives us is as if he is a mother bearing a child. Paul, like their mother, is nourishing them in his womb, so to speak. Wanting to bring them to full term, to completion in Jesus He wants them to be alive on their own, no longer dependent on him as if they were receiving nourishment from him through an umbilical cord of his ministry. And then if you notice in 20, he actually flips the metaphor real quick. Now the picture of the Galatian church. They're the ones that are pregnant. They need Christ to be formed in them fully. They're not at full term yet. They're in need of Christ growing to completion in themselves. And lastly, Paul He'd rather be with them in person to dialogue back and forth. That's why he, cha- he's why he says, change my tone. It's largely just because he wants to be able to dialogue with them. He'd rather not write this. He'd rather be with them and talk with them about what they're going through. Pray with them, discern from the word of God with them. His heart is for them through thick and thin. It's currently very difficult to labor for them, away from them, but he's doing it, as we know in the other scriptures, by prayer. He's making supplications for them, and he's even writing this letter within his anxiety for this church because he loves this church. He perseveres after them, even though word comes that they might be turning away to some wolves. And as we close our time, I want this to be an encouragement for you. To make every effort for Christ to form in yourself. If you're not pursuing after the Lord Jesus like Paul is, you cannot tell anyone, become as I am. Make every effort for Christ to form in yourself. Pursue after Christ at all costs, church, so that you can know him and love him and enjoy his presence and be with him and walk with him and abide with him and he can make his home within you and draw you closer to the Father and love you for eternity beginning today. Beginning today, let it also be an encouragement to you in whatever difficult, laborious relationship you might be in for the gospel, keep persevering in that relationship for their sake. This is painful for Paul. He did a good work at first. He didn't stop. He's persevering even though it's painful. And you might know this pain. Evangelism and discipleship may feel this way. Like you take three steps forward just to take five steps back. And moms, I'm talking to you too. You feel like you take three steps forward with your kids every single day just for the next day to feel like 10 steps back. You feel like it's all a waste. It's all for none. I feel like I'm wasting my time. I'm trying so hard to labor for these children. We in our gospel relationship tried so hard to labor for these people, and it just feels like everything's just pulling us back. It's all a waste. It's so tempting to quit but it's worth it to produce fully formed disciples of Christ. Moms, it's worth it. It's worth it to send them out with a faith that's not premature, but it's been nourished by a long, laborious work, persevering in it with them when it's hard, that has a healthy beginning when they come to Jesus. And it has a healthy, continued growth in Christ as the Spirit sanctifies them. For Paul... The church's growth in Christ was more important than even his own comfort. Our labor should be as well. Is that how we think about the long-term labor of early morning meetings? Praying over the phone late at night with our brothers and sisters? Doing our Bible studies weekly, bi-weekly with groups of friends who either don't show up or feel like they just want to stop coming and you feel like you got to text them 15 times just to come? even as members of the church meeting together and and fellowshipping one another, do we see the long-term view like Paul? We need to persevere together. And if we don't look at the long-term view, I'm just gonna tell you, we will regularly be disappointed with the lack of fruit, the lack of results, and we'll be genuinely discouraged when failures inevitably happen. They always do. But looking more and more like Jesus... Is worth it, and it takes time. It takes work, but it's worth persevering until the end when we together, as laborers for our king, get to stand before our king with our arms open wide, on our knees prostrate before him because he is the Lord of all the earth and heaven, and he says, stand up. Welcome, my good and faithful servant. It's worth it. All the labor in the world is worth it to stand before Jesus and to be received with him in heaven. Let's pray, church.